In the last episode of Shaped by the Sea, we spoke with Long Island fisherman Rocco Casa about new regulations, getting recreational fishers more involved in science and conservation, and how the sea is changing. Today, we'll be hearing from Kate and Ashley over at the Seacoast Science Center in New Hampshire. The Seacoast Science Center is a truly magical place that has shaped the minds of the local community here for over 30 years. It's also where I currently work as part of their marine mammal rescue team. Located on the, at the gorgeous Odeorn State Park, Seacoast Science Center is a hub for education, conservation, and community action. Come on the right day and you'll find harbor seals resting on the rocky shoreline, migratory birds stopping through for a quick snack on the hiking trails, and buses of students unloading to gain firsthand experiences with local wildlife. There's nobody better to tell the story of Seacoast Science Center than Kate Leavitt, the Director of Mission. So Kate, thank you so much for being, uh, for hopping on the show today. Oh, thanks, Brian. Thanks for the, the warm welcome. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it's, it's definitely a pleasure to have you on here. Um, for those who are listening out there, Kate uh, is, is my boss over at Seacoast Science Center. She's the Director of Mission. Um, and she's, you've been working there for a while, right? Uh, so how, how long have you been working at the Seacoast Science Center? And what connects you personally to the sea out here? Well, I, I, you know, I, I hate to say in some ways how long I've been working at the Science Center. Um, <laughs> that's going to quickly age me. But um, I did start working there way back in 2002. Um, so I've been there a really long time. Um, but I've really gotten to play a big role in our growth from a nature center to what's more of a community resource, I think. And and actually a, a regional force in marine science education and conservation. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So it's been, it's been an exciting um, evolution to, to be a part of and to, uh, to participate yeah. in. And, and, and Seacoast Science Center, it definitely relates to the, the name of this podcast, Shaped by the Sea, because what, what you do out there, what the mission of Seaco Science Center is, is to shape the minds of the local community and, and the students and the families that are all out, out here. Um, what I really love about the Science Center is that there's such a deep connection to the local community. Um, and and that's all part of the mission. Am I, am I right? Yeah, it, it definitely is. And I, and I think that you, you really hit the nail on the head with the evolution, evolution in our in our maturation, really. Um, you know, the ways that we educate and engage you know, we've really started paying attention to our relevance and role in the community and started listening and being more responsive to that. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely. And and so, yeah, and so Kate, uh, just one other intro question here. What what connects you personally to the sea? Um, I like to just ask all, all of my um, interviewees just what personally connects you to the sea? Is it, you know, you like spending time by the, by the coast? Um, you like fishing, surfing? Uh, what What is it for you? That's a fun question. Um, I yeah. I have a really deep um, and pretty personal connection. I well, I think everybody does um, to the ocean. I was actually born um, in Ohio, but I'm a Navy brat. Um, so even though we moved every three years, we were always somewhere coastal. And you know, without diving deep into my psyche, <laughs> um, the ocean and nature were really the thread of normalcy, I think, for me, you know, throughout all that. But, you know, it's funny, I was just talking about this with um, one of our team fellows the other day. Um, I think 
you know, my passion for marine biology and the ocean was really triggered when, when I was pretty young, um, maybe like around 10. Um, I have this really powerful memory of reading this kind of visually compelling story of a female marine biologist. And in that story, there are these drawings of this female scientist doing her work in this big lab with large tanks and things. And it just, um, it blew my mind, honestly, and opened my eyes to this world of opportunity. So, you know, I think that was always kind of somewhere deep um, in my mind for years before I really pursued marine science. But um, I, that really kind of kicked things off. Yeah, I, I would definitely say that's a common denominator between uh, everyone I've ever spoken with who works in this field is that we became connected to the sea at a pretty young age, right? And and that's something that the Science Center offers every day to, to kids that come by and interact with our resources. Um, so actually, that that transitions me nice into, into my next question for you. Um, so the Science Center is a place where students come to learn about marine science firsthand, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about uh, tell the viewers a little bit about the the museum and the the programs that Seaco Science Center normally offers and some of the exhibits that that we have out there? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, we engage a lot of different audiences. Honestly, we have um, formal programs in which we reach or target preschool kids, um, K through twelve kids, and we also have really specific teen programming um, and internships and things like that. We have environmental day camps, and then we have a huge visiting public um, that come to visit our Marine Science Center. Um, and, you know, as you kind of mentioned there, we've got um, some awesome exhibits in Aquaria and in our grounds. You know, we're inside a New Hampshire State Park, so we've got about 130 acres with this awesome variety of habitats. You know, like we've got rocky shore, salt marsh. Sandy Shore, Forest Uplands, um, which is all really cool because it gives us this, you know, we've got a nice museum classroom and indoor space, but we also have this fantastic outdoor classroom. Um, yeah, yeah. There's, there's learning resources indoors and outdoors, just all right in one place. Um, yeah, it's, what, oh, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, what's what's your favorite exhibit that, that we have there? Um, I know I, I have mine. Mine is personally the lumpfish that we have. <laughs> I don't know if any of any of our viewers have ever heard of a, what a lumpfish is. That it, it looks exactly like it sounds. Just a very lumpy little blue, dark dark blue uh, colored fish. Um, and we, it, it's, it's a local species found right off New England's waters. That's my personal favorite. I'd say go Google that if you've never seen it before. But uh, yeah, what's what's yours? Well, you kind of took mine. Lumpy is my favorite. I, you know, it's funny. Um, it, I think there are a lot of um, marine science fans listening, you know, to this. So, you know, I, the comparison that I have to the lumpfish, which they have very little in common, really, but they, they remind me of the mola mola. And, and I think it's just because they're, they're just so awkward looking um, that they kind of draw you in with their awkwardness. And then, you know, you, you start to appreciate all their, their cool adaptations. Um, yeah, but if I can't choose the lumpfish, I guess, you know, I really, I really like the seahorses there. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Uh, you know, some people who come to the Science Center don't even realize that we have seahorses that live in these waters, right? Yeah. Some people might think that they're a more tropical fish just because of the way that they look. 
and behave. But no, we have we have those right off of our, our coastlines up here. And something else that's super interesting about the Science Center is um is how the the vast majority of the species we have there are all found in local waters. It's local wildlife, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's all native species. And has it has it always been like that um, since Seco Science Center first started? Uh, you know, way back in in the nineties. Yeah, it it really has. I mean, um, you know, there there are different institutions like ours play different roles, and you know, some larger institutions, um, you know, they kind of they offer this gateway into the ocean world, which is is hugely important. Um, but I, you know, I think it's more of like a spectacle type nature and just you know awe and wonder and you know we've got some of that but our scale is is much more um tied into you know local habitat and making personal connections with nature um and that has a lot to do with our native species and sense of place and and you know really getting connected to our local coastal environment yeah absolutely and actually that's that's right up the the alley of one of the new exhibits that the center has just opened the the New Hampshire beaches mm-hmm. exhibit. Yeah. Um, if, if you want to speak a little bit about that, because that's completely tailored towards the New Hampshire's local marine environments, right? Yeah, it is. You know, it was really fun being a part of um, that exhibit design process too. You know, we started with the seed of an idea to really showcase New Hampshire's beaches and, and the variety of them, you know, including, you know, salt marsh and sandy and rocky and, and all that. And, and as we started designing that exhibit, we really started looking at our coastal zones as um, a shared space. And we wanted to, you know, a shared space between humans and wildlife. And we really wanted to explore that a little more deeply. So, um, you know, what ended up being created was, um, I'm really, really pleased with it. And I think, um, the, it, it really does explore that, you know, kind of human impacts and, and um, the role that we all play um, in that coastal environment. Yeah. yeah. It's cool. And and so, something else super interesting about that uh, exhibit as well that, that I've, I've seen firsthand when students come in and, and check it out is how engaging it is for the students. It's not just an exhibit where they're going to, you know, stand around and look at animals and look at the way that water's moving they're participating in it, right? We have like a, a little wave pool uh, that students can create waves in this tank and learn how they how they move and how they react to the shoreline when all that energy comes up on shore. Um, I, I think that's just absolutely incredible how engaging the, the exhibit is. And w- w- was that intentional in the design? Um, that, that was really intentional. Um, and, you know, my master's degree was was in biology and my background is marine biology, but I started um, doing a lot more research into inquiry-based learning and um, participatory learning and started working with um, some scientists over at University of New Hampshire several years ago. And, and we started looking at ways that we could um, integrate inquiry-based learning into our exhibit design process. And um, so it's it's been really fun. And, and, you know, these exhibit design projects are now hugely collaborative and, you know, we don't, we, we look at them more as um, an ongoing process. So even now that the exhibit is complete, you know, we're still tweaking and, and observing and watching and um, improving, but, but yeah, that's definitely the goal is to um, 
have visitors come in and, and you know, start exactly at their own entry point and, and follow their curiosity to, to learn. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like the difference between teaching and learning. Yeah. You're going to learn something and it's going to stick with you if you're the one that's figuring it out for yourself and inquiring about the, these things. Totally. Um, so no, I, I, yeah, it's incredible. But um, so I'm going to transition here because I do have another question yeah. that, and this is a topic that I think a lot of our viewers are going to be really interested to learn more about um, is obviously this pandemic, uh, COVID-19, it's brought around profound effects uh, to marine science nonprofits all over the world. Um, and as a learning institution, as a place where we're used to having bus loads of students come by, especially once spring and summer start to come around, um, and, and these students are learning, as we said, in, in the Science Center and in uh, these incredible local uh, marine environments all around Odeon State Park. How, are, how, have, how has the Seco Science Center been able to, to pivot and adapt to now having to teach these kids uh, at home? Right. Yeah, it's been it's been a huge change, obviously, for us, for everyone. And, um, you know, we've had to completely re-envision essentially the entire Seco Science Center visitor and student or student experience, um, you know, because like you mentioned, our doors and outdoor classroom have been shuttered um, temporarily. I, I think, you know, when confronted with how to respond, um, you know, two things jumped out at me pretty quickly. And, you know, one is we, we already sort of touched on this, you know, humans crave community and, and we need community. And, and the other is that, you know, the internet is, is flooded with resources. It always has been it even more so um, with everyone trying to prove their relevance. I think right at this very moment, that's true. Um, and, you know, what we really thought was that families and teachers don't necessarily need more resources, but they need support from their trusted partners and, and community members. And, you know, one, one thing we've always known that, that really separated our experiences from others is that it, it's really the personal interactions with, with our naturalists. So, you know, we tried to tap into this. Um, and you use the word pivot. I think we did a really impressive pivot towards creating this this awesome weekly newsletter that's filled with fresh videos and activities and um, crowdsource projects that families and students can do on their own. Um, and it, yep. yeah, I mean, it connects them back to us and to a place that they love, but it also provides prompts to get them thinking and exploring and creating in their own, you know, homes and backyards and things. Yeah, because that's de that definitely pops out as the challenge to me is how do you support inquiry based learning uh, at home, yeah. right? Yeah. And and I don't know. Uh, would, do you want to do you want to touch on some of the resources specifically? Like I I remember seeing um, one of the signs of spring uh, challenges that you guys mm -hmm. had, and some of the other citizen science work um, that families could do at home. If you want to if you want to just mention a couple of. Uh, those examples that you guys have been putting out. I think they're really awesome. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, that we, you know, we've been trying to use videos and things to, to prompt people to get out and, and follow inquiry. And, you know, what you mentioned, you know, one of the things we did um, with the signs of spring, we've got, you know, bud burst scavenger hunts for, for little ones. We've got, you know, we called it a backyard bio blitz. Um, 
for families and, and older students and adults, um, which is so fun. We've got this awesome um, GIS story map and, you know, we kind of, we would give out different challenges um, for trees or songbirds or whatever and encourage, challenge people to go out and um, upload their photos to our story map to, to kind of share those signs of spring. Um, so that, that was a great, um, that's a great example of the types of things that we've been doing. And I think, you know, it's also another example of, you know, not just keeping people busy and, and sparking curiosity, but again, like bringing people back to build community through. So through that, you know, story map, you know, we can kind of see what, what everybody's doing um, in the region. Yeah. Yeah. You can see how everyone else is contributing. Mm -hmm. And I, I also think it's cool how um, we're meeting people basically where they're at. Right. So what what most people are able to do right now in New Hampshire, the beaches are closed. Um, a lot of stores are closed. We're, but I, I'm seeing in my neighborhood in Portsmouth more people walking around than I've ever seen before. And and, you know, all they have to do is open their eyes to the, the natural environments around them and they might learn learn something new. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it, it's been it's been a great opportunity, honestly, um, to connect and and to think entirely out of the box and and just really get to the heart of engagement. And, you know, it yeah. helps us see that engagement does not have to be face to face. I mean, I, I wish it were, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there are other, you know, really powerful ways to do that. So it's been good. Yeah. And do you do you think that the Science Center is going to be taking some of what we're learning right now, right, mm -hmm. in this unprecedented time. And are we going to be using some of these resources and using what we've learned uh, when we open back up and go back to, you know, a semi-normal state? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, for one, we've been deepening relationships with, um, you know, with our teaching community, with families and things, and that stuff's not going to go away. Um you know, we've always always had pretty strong relationships um, with those groups, and and that's just intensified. And we're, you know, we're really listening to them and hearing what they need and what they want. Um, it, and honestly, you know, it's it's opened my eyes to some some gaps that we've had. You know, um, like a, a a digital media person. I mean, it's it's you really see the value in in what we were missing. Um, when, yeah. you know, by yeah. not reaching out in this way. So, so definitely there will be a lot that oh. will be carried forward. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's really no better way to reach new audiences and, and get more people connected with the resources we're producing than through online platforms. Right. And I think that's, that's exactly what we're exploring right now because we, we have to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, our next step is, um, you know, I've been working with teachers in the region um, to define what they really need right now. Um, and so we're building a teacher learning connection resource that's going to be coming um, in about a week and a half. And, you know, it still really focuses on those core ideas of coastal ocean science and conservation, but it identifies um, like cross-cutting concepts like patterns and cause and effect and change over time and, and things like that, um, science and engineering practices and literacy. So, you know, those were some of the things that that they told us that they really needed. And and so we're, we're building that right now. 
which feels good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah you're, we're listening to the to the needs of the local community, right? Yeah. And um, that I think that's really powerful, honestly. And uh, also, a, a, another question I have for you is just about the power of education in bringing around positive change mm-hmm. uh, for for the natural world, right? Yeah. Um, I, I personally have seen this uh, in my past jobs working on fishing boats and, and with the fishing industry. I've seen that, um, you know, older fishermen, uh, they were a little bit more stubborn in their ways, a little bit uh, more, <laughs> le- a little bit less less likely to, um, you know, welcome a NOAA observer or uh, any kind of enforcement onto their boat that, you know, with who have good intentions of protecting the fishery. Right. Yeah. And what I, but what I've seen though, is that younger fishermen who have, you know, uh, we've been teaching uh, environmental sciences in high schools now for a much longer amount of time. Um, students that are coming out of our schools nowadays have a better understanding of our impact on the natural world. And so I've, I've seen personally how education, it might be a, a longer term effect, before it takes place, but the power of education in making positive changes happen through time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I know that that's a goal of Seco Science Center um, and part of the mission. And I was wondering if you could just chat a little bit about how you've seen that happen with Seco Science Center. Um, You know, how how has the community changed through the years? Um, Do you have any stories about, uh, you know, just the power of education? Yeah, totally. You know, I think, like you said, I mean, education is everything. Um, It's funny, you know, personally, I started um, in field marine science, you know, down in the Gulf of Mexico, working with um, doing sea turtle research and and working with um, shrimp, shrimpers down there. Um, And I think, you know, what happened was my role on that team ended up being much more um, in outreach, education, broader impacts, and kind of translating our science. And, and so, you know, I, I learned early on in my career, you know, the value of, of engaging people in that way. And, you know, like you mentioned, it, it can often be slow um, and similar to relationship building. Um, I think, you know, the other thing that I've seen over the years is um, education is critical, but it's, it's, you know, one type is not a silver bullet. Um, and so it really includes an entire learning ecosystem, um, which is something that I've been growing and working on at the Science Center. Um, you know, when I say like a learning ecosystem, I mean like, you know, your home and your classroom and schools and libraries and parks and community members and things. Um, there was the, yeah, it's more than just one one building, one school. It's well, yeah. it is, and I think we we tend to think education, and we think you know our K through twelve learning, you know, or college or whatever. And and I, I read this article years ago, and it, it you know it estimated that about ninety five percent of learning takes place outside the classroom, and and it just it, it to me it really highlights the importance of a rich and diverse learning ecosystem, and. You know, I think places like ours, cultural institutions and, and nature centers, um, you know, they're designed to provide a, an inspiring and motivational experience um, and, you know, which is different from that that classroom learning. Right. And it's but they're so impactful that that they can they have the power to really shift a student or visitors thinking or, or behaviors or 
you know, like we see with our teens, I mean, often even their trajectory. So, you know, that's just, that's been amazing for me over the years to watch and see. And, um, you know, being there so long, you know, there are students that I had back in 2005 that are coming back and telling me about their, you know, their PhD dissertation and, and, and things like that. So yeah. yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. That's gotta be one of the most rewarding experiences ever to have a student that you've, you've watched mold and, and become exactly what they wanted to be. Right. Totally. In fact, I mean, one of our aquarists, um, you know, did exactly that. You know, he started with us when he was 12 years old um, volunteering and he was a counselor in training and then he worked for us and he went off to school and, um, you know, he now has a marine science degree and, you know, he's headed down that marine career pathway. So very cool. Nice. Yeah. And, and so Kate, we're, ru- we're running a little bit out of time here. So I just want to end on one more note here. Sure. What would you say, what would you say is your favorite part of working at the science center? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> and, and with an easy one, right? Um, yeah, right. I, I love working with our different audiences. Um, and I, you know, I also love being at a point in my career where I can really shape the vision and, and outcomes of an institution like ours and, and shape career development of our, of our early career staff. Um, you know, we're, we're never static and, and we're always changing and evolving and, incorporating new learning and practices, um, which is really gratifying. And, and I think, you know, the last thing I would just say is that another big part of what I do is um, external partnerships with other organizations. So, you know, I've been fortunate to work with some amazing people and institutions throughout New England. And, and I just, I welcome new connections and partnerships. So I encourage anybody listening um, to reach out. Um, We love to partner and collaborate so yeah yeah definitely that's that's one of the the most incredible parts of of working at an organization organization like this in new england especially where everyone's so tight-knit um it's really it's nice to work uh and collaborate with other organizations that are doing great work out there and um and yeah so for the viewers out there a a couple real awesome take-home messages uh just about uh inquiry-based learning and the importance of that um, check out if you live in New England. Uh, check out Seacoast Science Center's Your Learning Connection on on SeacoastScienceCenter.org. Um, you could find that and check out some of the learning resources that Kate and our incredible team at Seacoast Science Center have been putting together. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering, with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. 
Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the Dune Science Group. Com. Welcome to part two of our Shaped by the Sea podcast episode with Seacoast Science Center. So I'm really excited to welcome here uh, my boss and co-worker, Ashley Stokes from Seacoast Science Center. Uh, thanks, Ashley, for being here. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. Yeah, definitely. So Ashley, is, uh, Ashley works to manage the Marine Mammal Rescue Team uh, and program at the Seacoast Science Center. Um, it's a really... Super important program works very closely with the community to uh, to respond to and uh, help facilitate uh, to respond to and help facilitate the rehab of stranded marine mammals on uh, New Hampshire and Massachusetts coastline. So, uh, Ashley, I just I, it would be great if you could give our viewers just a, a little history of the Marine Mammal Rescue Program at Seacoast Science Center. Sure. Um, so believe it or not, I've been at the Science Center uh, 15 and a half years now. Uh, but I like to think of our Marine Mammal Rescue Program kind of still in its its young years. Uh, we started our program January 1st, 2014. Um, so prior to that time, New England Aquarium was responsible for our territory that we're now responsible for. Um, but in 2013, they actually decided to take a step back from some of their territory and really focus on sea turtle response um, because down on the Cape where they do respond um, and they do rehabilitate sea turtles at New England Aquarium, um, that has been getting busier and busier and those animals are endangered. Um, so they had to cut back their territory a little bit. Um, but luckily prior to that time, I was a, alongside working at the Science Center, I was a field responder volunteer for New England Aquarium's team. Um, so that gave me a number of years to figure out the field side of things. And then it gave the Science Center the very exciting opportunity in 2013 to start thinking about what would it look like if we ran our own marine mammal response team. Um, so we did just that. We applied for all the permits that we needed to get through NOAA Fisheries, who oversees all the work that we do. And our team formally started on January 1st, 2014, which was a very exciting time. <laughs> nice. That That's really interesting, though, that this, the Science Center has been around for 30 plus years and that this is just something that uh, it much more recently has begun. And, and it's, it's now such an integral part of the Science Center, right? Yeah, uh, we weren't really sure, you know, being a new program, you know, anytime you start something new, um, especially something that we like to say the customer, um, which in this case are marine mammals, uh, aren't paying for their response, unfortunately. <laughs> um, as in, you know, with school programs, you know, the schools pay for their field trips and with the camp programs, you know, the parents are paying for those kids to come to camp. Um, but this was an avenue that the customer, so to speak, was not paying for the services that were being rendered. Um, so that was, you know, certainly a big, big thing in the decision making process, you know, could we sustain this program to pay the staff and get all the supplies and, you know, you name it. 
Yeah. Um, it's certainly not a cheap program to run, but it's something we were very passionate about. Um, certainly education and conservation is on the forefront of what the Science Centre does. So it was a very nice fit. Yeah. Um, and it gave us a very different profile in the community, a very forward-facing profile. Um, yeah. People started seeing us on the beaches a lot, um, and it gave us a great time to talk about not only this new program that we started, but also to talk about the Science Centre and encourage people to visit as well. Yeah, definitely. And so what, um, just for the viewers out there, what are some of the animals that we most commonly respond to out in, in New Hampshire and northern Massachusetts? Sure. Um, so the majority, I'd say about 90% of what we respond to is uh, different seal species. So a lot of people don't know this, but um, if you go out to the beach and you see a seal and you're not, you know, you either don't have a biology background like a lot of us in this field do, or you just haven't been exposed to different seals, you might think that they're all the same. Uh, but we actually see four different seal species in our area, um, both in New Hampshire and Northern Mass. We see two of them year round. That's the harbor seal and the gray seal. Uh, they look pretty similar to the untrained eye. They're a little hard to tell apart, uh, but you can typically, especially as they get a little bit older, the gray seals are a lot bigger and they have what is, they're also called horse heads. And that's because their profile, if they turn their head to the side, they have a very pronounced snout or muzzle. Uh, yeah. so they have a really long facial feature. And then we also, in the winter months, we're starting to wind down on those now um, as we get into spring. But we see two other seal species that we refer to as ice seals. And the reason we refer to them as ice seals is they migrate down from the Arctic in the Canadian provinces in the winter months um, to forage down here. The juveniles will come down here a lot. We don't see adults as often, uh, but those two seal species are the harp seal, which is a little more common for us, and the hooded seal, which we rarely see, but we have had a couple in the last couple of years. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough to be with you uh, when we responded to that one earlier this year. It was a it was a juvenile hooded seal, and I'd never seen one of those before. It's they're, and they're called bluebacks because they have uh, that the their stomachs are are a white color, and the, and the backs are mm -hmm. this like darker gray blue. It was really cool to see. Um, yeah, but, they're very different, and their eyes are so far apart compared to the other three seal species. So they yeah. kind of look a little alien-like if they look at you straight on. Oh yeah, definitely. And Ashley, which which seal species would you say is your favorite? Uh, I know I know that gray Ooh. seals gray seals give you a tough time usually. Um, <laughs> they're, gray they're... seals can be rough. They are very aggressive, um, especially the young ones. Believe it or not, um, unlike the harbor seals are basically like puppies when they're young. Um, they'll follow you around the beach. So that's especially true um, with the really young animals. So that's a, a immediate telltale sign that you're too close if the animal sees you and starts to follow you around. Yeah. Um, but they're probably my favorite. They're pretty docile, um, especially when they're young. Unlike the gray seals, when they're young and you try to kennel them um, to give them a health assessment, they fight back. Oh yeah, uh, but the harbor seals just let you do your thing. Um, <laughs> but aside from that, I I think I'd say harp seals are my favorite. I just love how they look. Yeah, um, they're very unique. Each of them seems to have kind of their own personality in a way. Some of them are very aggressive. Some of them are very docile. Yeah, um, they and, don't follow one one behavior pattern. <laughs> yeah, and what I found super interesting, the first one that the first harp seal that I responded with, uh, with you to, um, when we approached the seal to help it out, they they play dead, right? 
They do. It's very strange. And they don't do it all the time. Um, but when you go to create them, um, so typically for, for those of you listening that aren't familiar with how we collect these animals, we basically use different size um, plastic dog crates, like travel dog crates. Uh, so for pups, we'll use really small ones. But for juveniles and larger animals, you know, we have varying size kennels. And we can either towel them. So we basically put a towel kind of over their head to protect us. We, we wear personal protective equipment of you know, varying levels, depending on the animal. Um, but if they're a little bit bigger, a little feistier, we can use what we call herder boards. And we basically come up behind the animal um, and basically allow the only egress or escape route uh, is the open door of the kennel. Uh, but for harp seals, when you put a towel on them and you try to get them in the crate, many of them as juveniles will basically go into a comatose state. Um, so they shrug up their neck and they basically play dead or they possum up, we sometimes will call it. Very strange um, that that's kind of their reaction to a stressful situation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, definitely. And I think it's also important to note that we only, uh, the Marine Mammal Rescue Team, will only um, kennel and and bring in for a health assessment animals that we think really can't survive on their own, correct? That's right. Um, so all of these species of seals, they're healthy populations. Um, so certainly, you know, when we call ourselves Marine Mammal Rescue Team, we're not out there actively trying to save every single animal. We just can't do it. Um, and quite frankly, we're not meant to. We would disrupt the natural cycle of some of these animals. Um, there's viruses that come through and different illnesses. But when an animal is out there suffering, whether it be from an illness or abandoned by mom for whatever the reason may be, um, or a severe injury, there's no reason that animal should be out there suffering um, when there is something that can be done for it. So we, we tread very carefully with those and we take every case on a case-by-case -case basis. There's no standard, um, if you will, for you know every live animal that has a small wound gets picked up because that's not the case. We just can't do it. Yeah. Um, and quite frankly, the ocean is where they're meant to be. It's where they're most comfortable. They're not stressed out there. And a lot of the smaller superficial wounds, they're going to heal on their own just fine. Salt water is great for that. Um, and seals are very resilient. But when we do need to step in, typically we start by monitoring the animal. Um, in rare cases, unless it's something very severe, we typically won't pick it up immediately when it's called in. Uh, we give it time and we kind of track that animal's progress or regress um, to keep an eye on whether it's doing better over the course of the day or the next day, or if it's doing worse and does need intervention. But we try to be very careful um, in only picking up the ones that we really need to be yeah. interacting with. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to say also one of the things that I find most interesting, and and to me, it's it's it makes it so rewarding work, working as a part of the Marine Mammal Rescue Team, is the connection that we have with the local community, right? So we, as a Marine Mammal Rescue Team, we couldn't protect these animals without help from the community, our volunteers, and even uh, the, the larger stranding network that we're a part of all, all up and down the East Coast, correct? Yeah, it, it truly, I mean, a lot of people use the saying a lot that it takes a village, but it truly does. It not only takes, you know, the, the small staff of our Marine Mammal Rescue Program and our consulting veterinarian, but we simply could not do this work without our team of volunteers um, that donate their time to help us out. 
and the community, whether it's through you know donations to our program or becoming a SEAL ambassador on the beach. Um, young kids, especially with their families, love that when we give them a job out there and we ask them to keep an eye on the animal for us. Um, but even down to the, the nitty gritty little things of just following the Marine Mammal Protection Act and staying away from these animals. Um, the federal regulation is 150 feet, which it's hard to gauge that, especially when you're out on a big beach. You know, it's hard to tell how far apart things are. Uh, but we usually will just kind of sim simplify it a little bit for people and say that 150 feet is about four school bus lengths. Yeah. Um, or, so it's it's a pretty expansive distance that you should be away from that animal. But the general rule of thumb we try to tell people is that animal shouldn't be perking up all the time and looking at you. Um, it should be able to behave naturally in the environment and enjoy it from afar. Yeah, absolutely. I think you touch on an another easy way for people to, to gauge distance. Um, I've heard of actually the rule of thumb where if you hold your thumb out in front of you, if you as long as you can cover the animal with your thumb you're a, a close to the safe distance uh, away. Uh, do you think that's that's a good estimate? I think that's a great estimate. That's something that the network um, that we've talked a little bit about um, came up with this year with the help of NOAA Fisheries, um, the government agency that oversees all of our work. Um, so our network, you know, some people may be listening and wonder, well, if I'm in Maine and you guys only respond, you know, you only respond in New Hampshire and Northern Mass, what do I do? Uh, well, our network, we're part of a network called the Greater Atlantic Regional Stranding Network, or GARS for short. Uh, but it runs from Maine through Virginia. And then, of course, there's a network down on the South Coast, um, as well as out on the West Coast. But we're a network that works very closely together for our messaging. Um, even some responses will cross state lines to help responding networks out um, and other organizations, but we work together a lot. We have monthly phone calls to talk about what's going on in the area uh, so that if something emerges that's out of the ordinary, uh, we can hopefully get out ahead of it and work together to to solve it. Um, but yeah. we do work very closely together. So even if you're in Maine, there's there's somebody to respond there as well. Yeah. And you mentioned out of the ordinary. That's something that I'm going to touch on a little bit later in this episode. Um, but the uh, another topic I want to dive into here is how have we been able to adapt to continue responding to marine mammals during the pandemic? So these are these are unprecedented times for everyone, for businesses, nonprofits, uh, everyone's being affected by this COVID-19 pandemic. How, uh, how have we as a marine mammal rescue team and program, uh, like what are some of the challenges that we've been facing and the limitations that we have? Um, and how are we continuing to, to make sure these animals get the care that they need? Sure. It's been strange, that's for sure. Um, and it hasn't been easy. COVID-19 has changed everyone's lives, personally, professionally, um, environmentally even. In yeah. New Hampshire, um, it came slow. It was kind of a step-by-step -step process. But now, uh, as we record this podcast and talk about it a little bit more, all of the beaches in New Hampshire are currently closed. Uh, so that's about half of our response territory. And then in northern Massachusetts, um, the beach access is a little bit easier down there, but they're limiting a lot of the parking. Um, and some of the the parks or refuges uh, reservations are also closed. So there's not as many people nearly on the beach right now than there would be on a normal day. Uh, so it's not to say that animals aren't out there, live or dead, um, but there's just, we rely on the public 
to call our reporting hotline to let us know that these animals are out there so we can send a responder. Um, So that's been very different for us. We, the calls are pretty few and far between right now. Um, And again, there could be animals out there. Um, But quite frankly, the animals that are doing okay are probably loving (laughs) that the beaches are so quiet and they can rest undisturbed, Um, especially as we get into harbor seal pupping season, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment. Um, But as far as responding, just to try to keep ourselves as safe as we can, um, limit exposure anywhere we can. Uh, The Science Center is actually closed right now to the public. Uh, So all of our staff are working remotely. Um, So if we do have an animal out on the shore, we're only sending staff responders right now. So I had mentioned um, that we really can't do this work without our volunteer responders that we rely on heavily. Um, But in this case right now, as we, we trudge through this new normal of trying to get through this pandemic and get through it as unscathed as possible, um, we've made the difficult decision to halt volunteer response um, and just use staff members for the time being. Um, But we're wearing all of our PPE. We have the masks and the gloves and, you know, all of that. It's, it's just not easy and it's, it's different. It's not something we've ever had to really worry about before. Um, So now it's come to the forefront of all of our minds, um, but we're we're getting through it. It's just yeah. It's, yeah. we're morphing as we need to morph and taking it as it comes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. And I mean, it's it's been just an interesting part to be a part of this. I've only been a part of the team since January, and I've seen this this transfer. You know, this change happen just instantaneously. Um, and I think it's also interesting to note too that the problems that we face up in New Hampshire and Northern Massachusetts are vastly different than. Uh, our partners are facing down in New York, Virginia, um, all those beaches that are much are down more south. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're actually experiencing uh, a lot more people coming out to those beaches down there. Um, and- yeah, so it will be interesting to see. You know, we I mentioned those monthly calls that we have with all of our network um, organizations to talk about how things are going. And the, the hot topic of our last call was COVID-19 and how have things changed um, and it was interesting to hear that a lot of the the, the more southern states to us, um, primarily New York, talked about it a lot, is that they're having double and triple the calls to their reporting hotlines because so many people are going out anyway onto these beaches. Um, so I like to think that a lot of it is, you know, in our area is people just being smart about it and, and listening to the advisories as they're put in place. Um, but not only that, in New Hampshire specifically, um, law enforcement has been fantastic with, with stepping up and really patrolling those areas to keep people off of the beach. You think of it as, you know, the beaches are huge. Why can't people just go out there and walk? But unfortunately, you know, when you have a handful of people that aren't following the rules, those are that's when things get shut down. Um, yeah. And I think it's, it's for the better for right now. Hopefully by the summer, uh, things can open back up and people can, you know, go on with their lives slowly. I think it's going to have to be a soft, soft reopening. But uh, for right now, I think we need to do the important thing and just just stay home as much as you can, as you know, as tough as that can be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think I think it's important to note too that a lot of our listeners are from all over the United States. And just if you are listening, one of the ways that you can help uh, aid your local marine mammal rescue team uh, and program would be to to keep your distance if you do see a seal or marine mammal on the beach and. It, educate others around you to do the same as well. Um, because I think that that is one of the, these animals' biggest threats that we, whenever we respond to animals on the beach, 
uh, one of the biggest threats is human interaction. And so I, I think that's a really important message for any of our listeners to take home is to, to make sure the people around you are staying 150 feet back um, and notify someone, get, give your local hotline a call. It's pretty easy to, what, what would you say is the easiest way to, to look it up? Just Google? Yeah, um, just Google. Actually, NOAA Fisheries has an entire map of the United States where you can click on the state that you're in and it brings up immediately um, the marine mammal responder closest to you. Um, but aside from that, if you just Google or even these days, you can ask Siri if you're an iPhone user, um, who do I call for a marine mammal in Connecticut you know, or wherever you may be? Uh, so it's pretty easy to access your local responder. And if you can't find the number, you can just call whoever you can find. And again, because we're a network, uh, we can pretty easily look up who you should be calling. Um, we also, on our hotline, inevitably, we've talked a lot about seals, um, but part of what we respond to as well is whales, dolphins, and porpoises. Uh, but we also get calls for a number of other animals on the hotline. And we always, always call people back and try to route them to the appropriate agency um, to get that animal the care that it that it deserves. Yeah, absolutely. And just speaking speaking of the pandemic and COVID nineteen, it's it's really interesting timing because, uh, and we we mentioned this before, but it coincides directly with harbor seal pupping season in the Northeast U.S. Right? And yeah, that's going to yeah. be tough as we move forward. <laughs> yeah. So so harbor seal pupping season. There's a lot we can unpack here just about that as a whole. Um, so harbor seals, like you mentioned, they're a more docile animal. They're they're one of the smaller seal species that we have up here, um, and they they come around our beaches. They, uh, you would you like to explain a little bit about when when they have their young, how long it takes for them to wean, and and when they're usually at our beaches? Sure. Um, so I mentioned that we see the Arctic seal species or the ice seals in the winter months. Um, so that's winding down right now for us. Um, but as we move forward, um, gray seals, actually, one of our year-round residents, pup December and January. Um, they're with mom for about three to four weeks, and then they're completely independent. Um, so we're just wrapping up that season now in that we are still seeing some gray seal pups um, or weanlings right now that aren't dependent on mom. Uh, but the next kind of uptick for us is harbor seal pupping season. So that's probably the, the most common seal species for us in New Hampshire in Northern Mass. Uh, and they typically give birth to their young May and June, uh, we used to say on average, but now it seems to be starting uh, mid to end April the last couple of years. Um, the Down towards the southern part of Massachusetts has already had a live premature harbor seal pup um, our colleagues up in Maine have already had a deceased premature harbor seal pup. So this, the indicators point to, you know, the season is starting. It typically, you know, just like any mammal, some of the moms will give birth to their young earlier um, as preemies. But the bulk of the season should be kicking up the beginning of May um, through June. And yeah. then harbor seals, after they give birth to their young just like gray seals, they're with mom for about 21 to 28 days, which doesn't seem like a very long time, um, which is why it's unbelievably critical to not interfere with these animals, especially during that time, you know, more so than anything else. They're, they're learning how to fend for themselves out there. They're learning how to swim, how to hunt. Uh, they need to nurse from mom to get their weight up um, and to build their reserves so that once they do wean from mom, 
they can have a little bit of an adjustment period, but they won't starve um, as they're trying to catch fish on their own. Uh, So it's really, really important this time of year to keep away from them. And again, with, with people not being on the beaches in our area, that might be more beneficial actually for them. Um, Mother harbor seals, once they do give birth, the pups can't swim very well. They'll often ride on mom's back. Uh, They can't go for the long foraging excursions that the mother will go on so that she can continue to nurse that pup over three to four weeks. Uh, So she'll actually drop the pups off on the beach. Uh, So it's not uncommon to see a young pup on their own on the beach. And of course, you know, they're newborns. They look helpless on the beach. They're really small. Sometimes they'll ha- still have their umbilical cord. They cry out for mom, so they're pretty vocal when they're young. Uh, so it's understandable why people would want to approach and think that something is wrong. But the very best thing to do is stay that 150 feet away and call the local responder. Um, we can get out there, determine if the pup is abandoned. We'll watch it for a period of time. Um, but in all likelihood, the mom has just dropped that pup on the beach. She goes off and fishes for herself. And then she comes back and nurses that pup. Um, so it's it's an important time to keep away from those animals. Yeah. So it's not, it sounds like the, the difference between gray seals and harbor seals pupping seasons is that harbor seal pupping season coincides with kind of the beaches uh, opening back up and, and just crowding out with people that are excited about spring and summer beach season. Yes. So harbor seals tend to correspond pretty directly with beach season. Um, So you can imagine if they're born middle of May, middle of June, they're on their own by July. um, And that's when the beaches really start ramping up. And these animals are still young. They're only, you know, a month or two old at that time. So they haven't figured out life on their own. They're completely naive to the dangers of people, dogs on the beach. Um, So they're they're figuring it out. They're like a teenager that goes off on their own for the first time. Um, it's not it's not an easy thing for them to learn. Uh, so it's it's important to yeah. let them be and let them do their thing. Um, luckily, gray seals are very aggressive from day one. So they will stand their ground and they will fight back. Um, harbor seals are just more docile and more naive. So they yeah. they don't get really aggressive right away. It takes them some time to figure things out. Yeah, it's just um, in so their nature. Exactly. Um, And harbor seals are a little bit different in that moms typically come on shore or on rocky outcroppings, give birth to their young on their own, whereas gray seals are in basically a colony when they give birth to their young um, in hollow areas. So it's there. They look a little bit similar, um, but they're very different in the way that they they're born and they grow up. Yeah, absolutely. And and speaking of harbor seals, uh, another topic to talk about here is is we're just finishing up uh, an unusual mortality event with harbor seals that was happening over the past few years, correct? Correct. Um, so just like we're dealing now with COVID-19, this virus outbreak, uh, in 2018, it started in the summer months, um, but it wasn't identified until August of 2018, but it really started ramping up in July of that year. Uh, we started seeing just just a lot of very sickly harbor seals. It did hit gray seals a little bit, but they tend to be stronger. Um, they just have, they don't react as as quickly um, to illness as harbor seals do. Uh, but there were a lot of dead and dying animals uh, throughout Maine, New Hampshire, and the northern part of Massachusetts. Uh, so when things really started ramping up in August, NOAA Fisheries stepped in. We started really actively testing and sampling these animals 
to figure out what might be going on and what might be causing this. Um, and certainly viruses in any population circulate naturally, um, but every once in a while they do have an outbreak, you know, similar to what we're experiencing now. But for the seals in 2018, the um, primary pathogen responsible for that die-off event or unusual mortality event, we often will just refer to them as UMEs, uh, was focine distemper virus or PDV. So it's a virus that causes a lot of respiratory symptoms, um, neurological symptoms. So they'll actually develop lesions on the brain, which causes them to seize on the beach. Uh, so it's pretty tough to see, um, not only for the general public, but also for the responders. It's just not an easy thing to know that this animal is suffering and there's not a whole lot we could do to help. Um, so that was a tough time. It was really busy. We had a lot of burnout. Our staff was tired. The volunteers were tired. Um, so just to give you an idea of the impact that that had just on our own marine mammal rescue team, typically in an average year, we'll close out the end of the year in December at about 110 to 120 cases. Uh, but in 2018, uh, we closed out the year at 298. So we were more wow. than double. That's, so it was a lot, yeah. um, but, you know, we were able to identify what was going on with the, with, you know, with the help of a lot of different uh, pathologists and, and scientists and researchers and trying to figure out what was causing this. Yeah. Um, so, the, so yeah, the, it was a tough time. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but it's important to note that the, the Seco Science Center's Marine Mammal Rescue Program was an integral part of understanding this UME that was happening, right? Yeah. You, so we were one of the kind of if you can call it this, um, one of the ground zero, basically, um, areas. New Hampshire and Maine were the hardest hit, and we're the only organization responsible in New Hampshire um, for all of the territory. So, yeah, we played an integral part. We're now co-authors on some of the papers that have come out um, in response to that um, PDV virus uh, that ran, ran its course and had an outbreak. So hopefully it's a number of years before we see that again. Yeah. Um, but it was certainly a learning curve for us. It was our first unusual mortality event while running our own program. Uh, the last one prior to that was in 2011. Um, and ground zero for that was around the Hampton Beach area. Um, so I was part of that early on as a responder for New England Aquarium. Uh, but we weren't running the backside of the program at that time. It was yeah. just field response. So it was very different. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a stress test for the, the program. And um and just speaking of viruses as well, while we're talking about phosine distemper virus, um, I know that this has been circulating and a concern with NOAA and, and our stranding network is, can COVID-19 um, be, be transferred uh, between humans and marine mammals? Um, I was wondering if, if you could just, I know that's probably something that a lot of our viewers are wondering about. Um, sure. If you could just talk about some of the conversations that have been going on with uh, just in NOAA and in our stranding network about that. Yeah. Um, so we've all heard by now about the tiger um, that tested positive for COVID-19. And I actually just heard a couple of days ago that there were two um, domestic kittens that tested positive for COVID-19. Um, but there's been a lot of talk about, you know, can it impact our dogs and cats at home? Can they give it to us and vice versa? But you know, as a network, we started thinking about, well, wait a minute, what does this mean for primarily seals? Um, that's the majority of what we respond to, because quite frankly, whales, dolphins, and porpoise should not be on shore. 
uh, if they're alive. They're an animal that spends their entire life in the water. Um, whereas seals, it's common and normal for them to come out on shore. So we respond to them a lot more. So we started thinking, well, you know, we know that there's viruses that can be passed between seals and people and vice versa and seals and dogs and vice versa. But what about seals to people with COVID-19? Um, so we're, it's too early to tell, um, but there has been a lot of talk in the network um, headed by NOAA um, to look a little bit more into it and see if seals even encompass the right, you know, DNA structure, you know, to harbor this virus, or is it something that they don't get? Um, we just don't know yet where it's so new, but it is something that's being looked into and researched you yeah. know, as so, we talk about it. So there's a lot of uncertainty, but it's, but it's on our radar, basically. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very important when you interact with anything right now um, to wear the, the, we call it PPE, but personal protective equipment that you need just to be sure. Uh, we always tell people, you know, when you aren't sure about something, especially in the case of a virus, uh, if you're not sure, for example, you know, that a seal can transmit something to you, always treat it as there is a danger there until you know that there is not. Yeah. Err on the side of caution. Yep, exactly. Yeah, that that's really good info. And, you know, I'm sure I'm sure that's a question that a lot of a lot of people I mean, I was uh, very curious about that myself. So it's it's been interesting to be a part of that circle with Noah to to get those updates as they come. Um, so we'll definitely be learning a lot more about that as as things progress. But um, and it's more so a risk for the responder, um, for the general public that are listening, you should never, ever be close enough to a wild seal that yeah. There should ever be a risk of transmission of anything um, just because the federal guideline is there um, to protect both you and the animal. Yeah, exactly. It's illegal. And and like you said, if you I mean, I personally wouldn't want to run across a, a larger gray seal. Um, you know, those no. those things are huge. <laughs> uh, we when we were doing research on them, the, like you said, the colonies down in uh, Monomoy Island on Cape Cod. I, I had the chance to see those things firsthand for the first time in my life up, up close. And they are huge. They are. Yeah. The male can be upwards of 800 pounds. So it's, it's nothing to mess around with. No way. No way. And <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> you, you wouldn't want to even try and run out that run, uh, outrun that thing. They, they are massive. No. And, um, um, and even the young ones, you know, people always say, well, they're so cute and they look so helpless and, you know, it's true. They are a lot cuter than a lot of our, you know, wild animals out there. But I always tell people, you know, if you were to encounter a small bear cub in the woods or you were to encounter a raccoon, are you going to approach it and try to touch it and take a selfie with it? Probably not if you're smart. Yeah, <laughs> um, so exactly. it's really no different. You should not be approaching wild animals. Um, yeah. Enjoy them from a distance and let them be in their natural environment. Yep. Respect the wildlife. You you don't want to bot treat treat other other beings as you would want to be treated right if you're resting exactly. on the beach if you're resting on the beach you wouldn't want someone coming up to you taking a selfie and, and poking you and trying to pour water on top of you right right exactly yeah. so that no that's all really good information and, and those are all that's all great advice as to how people at home can actually protect these animals when they when they go to the beach or when they encounter um some of this incredible local wildlife um right and and actually i want to I want to wrap up here uh, with just just a, a fun question for you. What what's one of let's say your favorite stories or most wild stories 
from working in marine mammal rescue. Uh, I'm sure you have just that's a good one. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure you have some great, you know, just a library of of experiences that you know anyone would love to hear. I could think of a couple that come to mind, and one was actually prior to us starting our own program at the Science Center. Uh, but while I was a field responder, um, I was actually working. I used to be the event coordinator at the Science Center. Uh, I was actually working a wedding at the Science Center one night, and I got a call from New England Aquarium staff saying, hey, you know, any chance, and normally organizations don't respond after dark um, because responder safety comes first, and it's just not as safe to be interacting with wild animals, you know, in the dark. So I thought it was strange when I got the call, and the staff on the other end of the line said, hey, any chance you're in the Rye area? And I said, well, actually, yeah, I'm at the Science Center working an event. And she said, well, is there any chance you could respond to an animal? It's an emergency. So I said, yeah, you know, let me get coverage here and, you know, I can go. Just let me know what beach I'm going to. And she said, well, that's the thing. You're not going to the beach. You're going to someone's house. <laughs> huh. Okay. So I said, all right, I'm up for it. And she said, the, the police officer will meet you there as well, just, you know, just for safety reasons. And you know, the family seems nice, but long story short, they took this seal home thinking that it needed help. So they thought that they were helping, which happens more often than not. Um, and they, they were doing what they thought was the right thing. And they took this harbor seal pup home, um, put it in their kitchen, and then called the aquarium, who in turn called me. So I got out there to the house and it was a big learning curve for everybody. Um, unfortunately, that pup didn't end up surviving. It actually died in their home. Um, but those are the perfect things where, you know, oftentimes people will say, well, did they get a fine? And it's something that no law enforcement agents take very seriously. Um, but in this case, this family truly thought they were doing what was right for the animal. So that's somewhere where no law enforcement would then step back and talk to them and give them some education and have them become advocates for these animals in what is the right thing to do moving forward. Um, so there's those kinds of things that happen. So that was probably my most eye-opening yeah. experience yeah. with marine mammal rescue. But I think as far as the interesting ones um, that do have happy endings more often than not, uh, we just recently and Brian, you were part of this, we had a gray seal pup that, you know, you expect to see these animals on the beach, in the salt marshes, sometimes in the rivers. Every once in a while, they'll get into a tidal pond. Um, but this day, we got a call from the Rye Police Department animal control officer in New Hampshire, and he said, hey, we have a seal in the middle of the road. <laughs> what? <laughs> And he said, yep, it's, it's on the double yellow lines as we speak. And Route 1A, for those of you that don't know the area, it's a pretty busy road. It runs right along the ocean. So people drive up and down it, you know, to see the ocean and things. So we got out there as quick as we could. Well, it turns out we had responded to this animal before, um, twice. <laughs> and then, you know, the third time we responded to it, it was in the middle of Route 1A. So we had not only a new moon coming, so the tides were higher than normal, we also had storm activity. So we had storm surge. So the, the high tide was exceptionally higher than it would normally be. And again, as these animals are newly weaning from mom or might wean a little bit too early, 
they have no idea what they're doing. So it takes them some time to figure it out and they tire very easily. So you compound that with a storm and they get exhausted so fast, they look for somewhere to rest. So this animal probably got into that marsh area on high tide, couldn't find somewhere to haul out, found that spot, but it happened to be 1A. And then as it tried to get further and further away from the water, it ended up further and further onto the pavement. Yeah. So we picked that animal up. He looked pretty good. He was very feisty. Um, we tagged him and sent him on his way, relocated him to a safe spot. Well, we were joking and saying, hey, when are we going to get the next call on that animal? And it was the very next morning. And where was he? Again, in a different spot on Route 1A. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't so we get picked that up. animal up again. He just wasn't figuring out that the road was not the best spot for him to be in. Um, so we did send him to rehab. He's still down there now with our colleagues at National Marine Life Center. And the naming theme for this year uh, is lighthouses. So he's named Boone for Boone Island Light. You can actually see that lighthouse from the Seaco Science Center. Uh, so that animal's doing well, but it's it's interesting cases like those. You just never know what you're going to get when the hotline rings. <laughs> yeah, I know. that That was definitely the most interesting animal that we've responded to since I've been working uh, with the marine yeah. mammal rescue team. But I think your first story also is a really good testament to just how impactful Seco Science Center's, uh, the rescue team, the the community outreach end of the work that we do, right? We we yes. are we are educating these people who I'm telling you that I, I talked to so many people down at the beach and a lot of the people that you know are getting too close to the animal, they really actually want to help them. And so it's, it's really we can turn some of these people who you know, have, are, are at risk of harming these animals into some of their biggest supporters, right? And, and all they need is just that, that education, that little kick of education to put them in the right direction. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a great note to end on. Uh, Ashley, thank you so much for, for taking the time and um, chatting with, you know, all these viewers out here for the Shape by the Sea podcast. Um, yeah, I, I, we had a ton of really good takeaways stay 150 feet away from any marine mammal on the beach um call your local marine mammal rescue hotline and just respect these wild animals um is there anything else that you want to would like to add there or close with no that's the biggest thing is just really remembering and spreading the word you know if you are on the beach and you see somebody that's too close to an animal just let them know hey you know these animals are federally protected I can, I know who to call, you know, but let's step back from the animal and let the trained responders come out. Um, that's probably the number one take home. I always tell people is the most important thing to do, not only for the live animals to stay away from them, but also for the dead animals. Um, yep. Sometimes people will think, oh, well, you know, the dead animals aren't of any value to them. Why would they want to know? But because these animals are federally protected, um, we want to know about all of them, live and dead. We still send a responder out to collect data off of the deceased animals. If it's freshly deceased, we'll take it in for a necropsy, which is basically the same as an autopsy, but on an animal, um, to figure out why it died and identify, you know, if, if there's anything else alarming that we need to be looking further into um, as far as health trends go. Nice, yeah, that's those are really good points. Um, yeah, definitely, Th and thank you so much again, Ashley, for, for being on a part of this, this podcast. And uh, I'm looking forward to to some more interesting stories out there responding to harbor seals this uh this spring season i know and hopefully we'll see some of you listeners out on the beach this summer i'm crossing yeah. my fingers 
Absolutely, absolutely. Feel free to feel free to give us a ring if you ever run into a seal on the beach. <laughs> <laughs>